Hello and welcome to the Archbishop's Corner. This is where we meet each week to talk with Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair about faith, morals, the life of the church today, and how the gospel makes sense in an ever-changing world. This is where we go to find the answers to our lingering questions about the teachings of the church, living the faith life of a Catholic in contemporary society, and developing a stronger relationship with God. I'm Father John Gatzak, with many questions that you and I will ask Archbishop Blair as he responds to what matters to you in the Archbishop's Corner. Out in a fishing boat, empty and exhausted, Peter discovered the wonder of God's second chance. One day, Jesus used his boat as a platform. The crowd on the beach was so great that Jesus needed a buffer, so he preached from Peter's boat. Then he told Peter to take him fishing. The apostle-to-be had no interest. He was tired. He had fished all night. He was discouraged. He had caught nothing. He was dubious. What did Jesus know about catching fish? Peter was self-conscious. People packed the beach. Who wants to fail in public? But Jesus insisted, and Peter relented. At your word, I will let down the net. This was a moment of truth for Peter. He was saying, I will try again your way. When he did, the catch of fish was so great that the boat nearly sank. Sometimes we just need to try again with Christ in the boat. In the Archbishop's Corner is the best place to get the encouragement to try again. And Archbishop Blair is the best person to provide that encouragement based on faith, rooted and grounded in the words of Jesus, let's go fishing. Failures are fatal only if we fail to learn from them. So thank you, Archbishop Blair, for inviting us into your space, into the Archbishop's Corner. How are you doing today? Very well, thank you. Today we observe the Solemnity of the Most Holy Body and Blood of Christ, also known as the Solemnity of Corpus Christi. And this feast, originated in France in the mid-13th century, was extended to the whole church by Pope Urban IV back in 1264. And the primary purpose of this feast is to focus our attention on the Eucharist. Now, due to the pandemic, Catholics have had little access to the Eucharist for over a year now. Many have participated in the Mass on television and by way of the Internet, but the Eucharist still has not been accessible. Do you think this has made a difference in our faith lives? Well, the Eucharist, of course, is central to Christianity, or it should be. I mean, it certainly is central to our Catholic faith. But, you know, this sacramental reality of Christ's gift of his very self in his body and blood speaks volumes about the revelation that's been made and about our faith. It speaks to us about uh, heaven, but it also speaks to us about earth. It speaks to us about uh, the reality of the resurrection of the body. It has to do with our sacramental, mystical connection with Jesus himself. It has to do with the centrality of his lordship and his saving work for the whole world. So, you know, very often religion become a mat- can become a matter of uh, ideas or um, some kind of uh, philosophy or even some kind of ethics, uh, moral uh, way of life. Uh, but this goes much more profoundly to the heart of things because when you talk about the Holy Eucharist, you're talking about subs- the substance of bread and wine being turned into the very substance of the body and blood of Christ, the Son of God and Savior of the world. So just as uh, at a certain point this uh, solemnity was introduced into the life of the church to celebrate this particular mystery, it is very timely 
in light of the pandemic, as you say, and in light of many other things that are being discussed and issues that are coming up in our country, that the Holy Eucharist be front and center of not only our talking, but above all of our adoration and our celebration. Mm -hmm. You know, Christ says, you know, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you cannot have life within you. And the church believes it's possible in extreme circumstances where it's simply not possible to go to Mass. It's possible to instead to have it make a spiritual communion. But the reality is that, uh, you know, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you cannot have life within you. So as heroic and as wonderful as it was during the pandemic for people to be able to participate remotely at Mass, they do have to consider the importance now that we can come back of receiving, actually receiving the body and blood of Christ in person. You can't do that remotely. And I've heard many people talk and say that they were happy that our our churches are open now to 100% capacity because they can receive the Eucharist once again. So that's one of the, the good things about our churches being open again because people can receive the spiritual nourishment of actually receiving the Eucharist once again. Yes, God never holds us to doing the impossible. You know, uh, whether it's going to confession or receiving communion or any other sacraments when it's simply not possible because of things like the pandemic. But when it is possible again, then we have to take our uh, obligation seriously. But, you know, I hate to even use the word obligation. Mm. To receive the sacraments is a tremendous gift and privilege. I can't imagine just thinking of it as an obligation. If we think of it as obligation, then we have a long way to go in uh, purifying our love for God. Yes, it's true, just like in a family, being a mother or father, when the baby's crying at two in the morning, it may seem like an obligation. Uh, But we know that it has to have a far deeper motivation. And similarly for us, we're all human. Sometimes we do things out of sheer drudgery or obligation, but that can't be all the time, and it can't be the primary motive for, for what we do. The higher motive of action is love, then. And I wouldn't say just higher, the essential uh, mm-hmm. motivation, because without, as Jesus says over and over and over again, without love, it's empty. It, what does St. Paul says, a clanging gong or a clanging cymbal and nothing else. Thursday, June 10th, is the 86th anniversary of the founding of Alcoholics Anonymous. In June of 1935, Bill Wilson connected with Dr. Bob Smith to form a national organization that promoted personal support with divine intervention to other alcoholics. And AA is a fellowship, although it does not affiliate with one particular religious denomination, it certainly incorporates many aspects of religion, including hope and faith, brotherly love, and prayer. In battling any type of addiction, Archbishop, how important do you feel a strong faith and belief in God is to the recovery the healing process? Well, I think uh, for a person of faith, we realize that any good we do uh, in this world and any evil we overcome is uh, the result of the grace of God. You know, I sometimes think we need to reflect if we think we're pretty decent people and, uh, you know, we don't do too much wrong. Well, let's not take any credit for that because if we really know ourselves well, we should know perfectly well that we are capable, Any people are capable of great evil. And by the grace of God, and that grace can be expressed in the circumstances of our life, you know, the family we were born into, the, the, the society, the community. Those are all graces that God has given us, plus the interior graces to resist temptation. 
so let's not kid ourselves. We're not um, on our own, the wonderful little people that maybe we think mm-hmm. we are sometime. Uh, what we could have, what we could have been without the grace of God, ought to really fill us with uh, a sobering understanding and profound gratitude to God. So yes, Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, yes, it does. Uh, there's a spiritual aspect to it. That's for uh, uh, substance abuse. People have an inclination to substance abuse. You know, today it's uh, very unpopular to say and even gets people into trouble. But, you know, similarly for the church, uh, for persons with a homosexual inclination, that we try to give them the help we can, spiritual and um, fraternal, uh, I guess you'd say sororal as well for women, uh, to uh, live a chaste life. Uh, and th- this is, a you know, in our archdiocese and, and elsewhere, uh, there's the organization called Courage and Encourage, Encourage for the families of persons with homosexual inclination. It's not about conversion therapy. It's, not, it's about living a chaste life and accepting who you are, the way you are, but then living a life of virtue. So whether it's that or it's, uh, you know, other forms of uh, inclinations that people have, with God's grace, we we can overcome. We can live a virtuous life, in other words. On Friday, the 11th of June, the Catholic Church observes the solemnity of the Most Sacred Heart of Jesus, one of the most widely practiced, well-known devotions in the Church. It takes the physical heart of Jesus as a representation of his divine love for humanity. And the Feast of the Sacred Heart has been in the Roman Catholic liturgical calendar since 1856, and is always celebrated 19 days after Pentecost Sunday. How can we continue to deepen our relationship with the heart of Jesus, Archbishop? It is a devotion that's connected with the private uh, revelations or apparitions to some saints, but obviously it is very much uh, rooted in in the scriptures, you know, and goes uh, to uh, that moment on the cross when Christ's heart was pierced with a lance, and out came blood and water as the sign of sacramental life in the church. Uh, the water of baptism and the blood uh, of Christ's gift of himself in the Holy Eucharist. And uh, I think that like any devotion, it is not something added just to scripture or not part of scripture, but it's part and parcel of it uh, that the, uh, the love of Christ, of which St. Paul speaks so eloquently, uh, and uh, uh, which every page of the New Testament really is a testament to, that, that this love of Christ invites us to love him in return and to love other people as we love ourselves. Uh, it's a pierced heart, you know, one that was wounded uh, and, and died for our sins. So it is a, a very uh, beautiful devotion and, uh, and one that, again, also draws us to the Holy Eucharist. And then the following day, Saturday, June 12th, The Church celebrates the Memorial of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. This devotion honors Mary's perfect purity of heart in virtue of her Immaculate Conception. What's the main difference between the devotions to the hearts of Jesus and Mary? Well, it's just that it it applies to two different persons, you know, who are unique. And, uh, you know, as far as remember in Scripture, again, what did Simeon say in the temple at the presentation? that a sword of sorrow will pierce your heart, referring to Mary, uh, that the thoughts of many may be made known. This mysterious saying uh, that occurred uh, in, in the New Testament 
when Jesus was presented in the temple as a newborn infant. And uh, so there too, these are, these are, you know, they're not just made up things that have nothing to do with, with the Bible. Um, so uh, the, just as Christ's heart was pierced with a lance on the cross, uh, one can say that the heart of Mary was also pierced by the sorrow of what happened uh, to her divine son. So, you know, whether it's uh, obviously Christ himself, son of God, or whether it's devotion to Mary, his mother, these are all ways for us to grow in love for God and for one another. And I might add, too, that uh, I forgot to mention that the Sacred Heart Feast is also a day of sanctification for priests, a prayer mm -hmm. for the sanctification of priests. And God knows we need that, uh, that priests, above all, are called to be models of holiness and to strive for holiness in their life, because none of us is perfect, but uh, striving for that holiness. And without holiness, I don't see how a priest can be very effective, fruitful uh, in, in his ministry. Because we're, we're none of us is perfect, but we're striving for that holiness and making that our ideal, and and shaping our life according to the to the standards of holiness, the call of holiness. Let's take a look now at our gospel reading on this Corpus Christi Sunday. Our gospel is taken from Mark, the fourteenth chapter. So here's the gospel account as it is dramatically presented. After which we'll find out from you, Archbishop, what your thoughts are and how we can relate to this gospel in our own lives. On the first day of unleavened bread. When they sacrificed the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? He sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the householder, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I am to eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it as Jesus had told them, and they prepared the Passover. As they were eating, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I shall not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. What inspiring thoughts do you have for us on our gospel today, Archbishop? Well, I think in a way I've already shared them inasmuch as this gospel about the uh, Last Supper um, and what happened there in the gift of the Eucharist, uh, this is my body, take and eat, this is my blood, take and drink. Uh, these, uh, these are things that are at the heart of the Holy Eucharist, that are the Holy Eucharist, and that are, are the foundation for the feast that we're celebrating so hugely important to the life and, and mission of Jesus. It's kind of the culmination and we, that we celebrated during Holy Week, you know. Yes, Easter Sunday, but then also Good Friday and Holy Thursday. And that's what this gospel is about, Holy Thursday. You know, that this is one, uh, how should we say, it's, it's like a, the unfolding of one great mystery. Uh, the gift of Christ's very self to us, his body and blood in the Holy Eucharist on Holy Thursday at the Last Supper. His uh, 
Passion and Death uh, on Good Friday and his resurrection from the dead on Easter Sunday. And all of them have to do with his flesh and blood. Our faith is not a disembodied faith. Our faith is not some kind of uh, Gnostic uh, mystical thing that disparages a material creation in the body or that thinks of religion as some kind of mystical ideas and all, all this kind of stuff. Uh, no, it is very much tied to the reality of the flesh, to the reality of the world that God created good, and to the restoration of all things in Christ. Make the connection for us between the Passover and the Eucharist. The gift of the Holy Eucharist was given in the celebration of the Passover meal. And, of course, it does emphasize the, the continuity of God's plan, you know, between the Old Testament and the New, that what, uh, what is, has become real in the New was prefigured uh, in the Old, and what was in the Old is fulfilled in the New. Mm-hmm. So the two go together very, very uh, closely, you know. Christ's teaching in the New Testament is not a repudiation of the Old Testament. It is a confirmation and a fulfillment. Now, that does mean that some of the practices and forms of the Old Testament no longer apply to us because they were fulfilled in Christ in a, in a new way, but that was prefigured, you know. I mean, uh, and, and so there's a profound unity there uh, between the two Testaments. You know, the Old Testament is about Christ, too. I mean, our, obviously our Jewish brothers and sisters don't accept that because they still think that there's a Christ, an anointed one to come, uh, rather than believing that it's been fulfilled in Jesus. But, uh, you know, that, that, that is all of a piece as well. Why did Jesus say, over the bread, this is my body, over the wine, this is my blood? What's the purpose? Why didn't he just say, when you take bread and wine, say a prayer and think of me? No offense, but that's an idle, <laughs> a bit of an idle question in the sense, why didn't he do something else? Well, I, th- I know what you're trying to get at. He didn't do something else because he didn't mean those other things. He meant uh, what he said, and uh, so it is what it is. For him to give us his body and blood as our spiritual nourishment is to give the very substance of his life for us, right? To be yes. nourished. This is, our, this is our nourishment, and and it's not like... It's symbolic of his body and blood, or it's a representation of his body and blood. It is his body and blood. We believe that wholeheartedly, well, do we not? Yes, but even more so, as Paul explains, and that's you know the whole tradition and theology of the church teach, that to be a member of the body of Christ uh, is not just partaking in his body and blood, but we become the body and blood of Christ through what we receive. So, you know, the body of Christ, the the mystical body of Christ, we're actually members of that body, which unites us to one another and unites us to him. I read an article, a little article recently, about further studies on the shroud. Mm -hmm. And uh, to make a long story short, some of those tests that were done uh, some years ago that seemed to discredit the the shroud were very flawed. And uh, recent studies, again, confirm that they're, they're, this is just beyond uh, explanation, and the, the, everything about it points to its authenticity. But these uh, very reverent scientists who have done some of this work, it just struck me. They said that the blood fragment that is still on the shroud is type AB blood. 
uh, you know, it's just kind of startling to me to think that Jesus had AB blood, you know, a very, very human thing to to emphasize, you know, that the reality of Christ's incarnation, uh, that he was uh, one uh, of us in all things but sin, uh, the incarnate Son of God. Interesting, interesting. Let's look at some of the questions that have been submitted by our listeners. This question comes to us from Richard. You called in with a comment, and he'd like your take on this situation, Archbishop. Uh, not necessarily a question, it's just uh, a comment. Um, with people coming back for uh, Mass and liturgy, um, I'm wondering if from time to time, and I've rarely experienced this, where there's a teaching Mass, in the sense that the priest would devote just a little bit of time during the liturgy, and say why certain things are being said, and I think people would appreciate that. Maybe they forgot what they're saying and the significance and the different parts of the liturgy. And uh, <clears throat> yeah, I'd, I'd like a feedback on that. Thank you very much. What do you think of that, what Richard calls a teaching mass, Archbishop? Well, Richard, it's very timely what you're saying, and I couldn't agree more. Uh, you know, we bishops are trying to see how we can uh, reinvigorate people's appreciation of the Mass in the wake of the pandemic. And in our own archdiocese, you know, we've had a synod, the results of which have been postponed, but will be published later this year, in which people talk about the need for these things. And uh, I personally have never uh, done uh, or been exposed to what is done in a in a so-called teaching Mass. But I have heard of it. And it is simply not to talk people to death, uh, you know, about technical things, but it does provide a commentary on what the priest is doing in a way that reverently unlocks for people the, the meaning and the, the history of what is being done. Uh, I think it was a grave mistake after the Second Vatican Council to think that just because things are in English uh, that uh, with a microphone that people understand them. Even very educated people uh, intelligent people, you know, otherwise, you know, in, in different things, might not, uh, if you don't know uh, uh, the Bible well, if you don't know the New Testament that well, if you don't know theology or spirituality that well, uh, you can maybe, uh, you know, you can appreciate it at a certain level, but there are other things that you, you won't understand why they're done the way they are in the Mass. I'm all for that. Now, uh, the one danger is we don't want a priest just talking forever, uh, sometimes maybe not in the most informed manner about these things. Uh, it has to be done very succinctly, so it's not just, a, you know, talking, uh, taking over the Mass with some kind of talking. But if there can be a kind of commentary that is helpful and educating and, and spiritual, then that's, that's I would very much like to see that done. You don't want to lose the worship content of no, the it's No, it's not like some kind of, I don't know, dissecting of the Mass, no, it, but it would offer some commentary, some spiritual education about what is transpiring. And the purpose would be to, to help with a greater appreciation of the significance and meaning of the liturgy. Huh? Michael from Litchfield has a question. If God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three persons in a single divine nature, why does Scripture emphasize that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God? Well, Michael, you have to understand that the that the Trinity is a mystery of faith that 
you know, I call it uh, transrational, not irrational, but transrational. So there are many images in Scripture uh, to understand, to to reveal this, but it is a mystery that goes beyond uh, our uh, comprehension. So that's not to say that uh, you know we can't have any, have any insight into it. But when we talk about being about Jesus seated at the right hand of God, well, clearly we know that in the spiritual realm of eternity. Uh, you know, they don't have uh, pews and chairs carved made out of wood or marble. Uh, it's an image uh, to be at the right hand. And, of course, that all goes back into scriptural imagery, even into the Old Testament, about this kind of thing. Uh, it's in the Psalms, you know, uh, uh, um, and in other places in the scripture. So we have to interpret it in a spiritual sense. And when it says, why does scripture emphasize this, It, it you'd have to look at the whole uh, scriptural imagery and tradition of what that means in in scriptural language about Christ's authority and Christ's place uh, in the Godhead and in the scheme of things. Marilyn from Hartford says, since the start of the pandemic, I have been faithfully watching the daily television mass. I just heard that the dispensation has been lifted and feel pressured to go back to a physical church. Going back to church worries me as my doctor has advised me not to go where large groups of people are gathering indoors. He says it is too soon to go into crowds again. I am afraid to do the wrong thing. Am I sinning if I continue to watch Mass from home? Well, Marilyn, I, I've always tried to tell our priests and people, even as we ease up on these things, that if they have any health problems or uh, fears, uh, for their health, then they shouldn't feel obliged. God does not ask the impossible, you know. He doesn't ask us uh, to do things that uh, are, are unreasonable, uh, with, well, at least with regard, you know, to a situation like the pandemic. Yes, yeah, sometimes God certainly asks us to do heroic things, but risking one's own health to go to Mass is not one of them. However, this is where we have to try to balance the progress that's being made uh, with the pandemic in in uh, health restrictions, uh, to balance that with the legitimate fears and conditions that people have. I don't know, Marilyn, if whether you're able to get the vaccine or not, or whether you've gotten it or not. But certainly, if, you're do if your doctor says that in your situation, you, it's better for you not to go indoors, well then, uh, don't go for now. And Or if you can find uh, a church that's offering outdoor masses uh, or something within the range of possibility for you. I'm not saying you have to drive to Massachusetts to do it, mm. but if there's something that, you you know, I do know of one parish that uh, just uh, I saw this week where the pastor said they're still having mass under a tent outdoors for people who are maybe perhaps uh, uh, in your situation, Marilyn. The bottom line is uh, I don't think you should feel troubled in conscience about this as, for as long as this situation uh, continues in some, fa in some form. Dave from North Haven says, I was in adoration last night reading a meditation on the Eucharist and the prayer read, Enlighten my mind to understand the Eucharist not as a thing but as a person. It hit me right over the head. I had always thought of it as a thing, not like part of the flesh of Jesus or something. So then I asked myself a question I never had before. How is Jesus present in the Eucharist? Archbishop, how is Jesus present in the Eucharist? Where do we find the teaching about his presence? Well, David, you find it in the 
uh, Catechism of the Catholic Church or in the United States Catechism for Adults, published by the United States bishops. And basically, Catholic theology has used the word transubstantiation, which is a big word simply meaning that the substance of bread and wine is no longer bread and wine, but the substance is now the body and blood of Christ. It's simply being true to what Jesus said, this is my body. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot have life within you. This is my blood. We accept that in faith. It's a great mystery of faith. And we say that, don't we, at Mass? After the consecration's over, the priest says the, the mystery of faith. And then we, we respond. I guess that is the best how, uh, in short summary, that I can give you. And I would refer you to those catechisms for a fuller explanation. Archbishop, we've come to the end of our time together this morning. Can you close our program with a prayer and a blessing, please? Lord, in our world today, we face many challenges in our society, which is troubled by division and by racial tension and racism, by many moral questions, uh, threats to the right to life, threats to marriage and family, threats to the very personhood of, uh, that, that is your gift to us. We pray that uh, the gift and light of the Holy Spirit will be upon us, that we may be faithful and true witnesses of our Catholic faith, that we may lead others in love to embrace life as you have given it to us. And we pray that through the gift of the Holy Eucharist in particular, there may be a great reappreciation of this sacrament as we come out of the pandemic. And may Almighty God bless you all in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Archbishop, thank you for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner on this day where we celebrate Corpus Christi. May it be a very special day for you as well. Thank you, and we look forward to joining you next week. Thank you.